Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, please visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Steve Fowler. You got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, you want to read that text today for us. Uh, turn to your iPads, your phones, or however you want to access Genesis chapter 50. Uh, we're in our series that we're calling Reconciled. Can we just say we're having a family meeting, we're having a family conversation, and we're talking about this need for reconciliation. And we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week, because last week I was talking about the idea that you can't be right with God and not be right with one another. That we, we, yes, we want to be right with God, but we also want to be right with one another. And when the right with one another happens, good things happen in our cities, in our families, in our world. Um, and that's the promise of Jesus. And I was going to pick up this whole concept by reading uh, the story of Joseph. If you've never read his story, let me tell you, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And if you go kind of midway through Genesis, maybe just a little, maybe a little bit farther than midway and read this story, it will grip you. You will not be able to put it down. It's that compelling of a story. But the part I'm reading from is at the end of the story. Joseph's father, Jacob, has died. There's going to be a funeral. Uh, Joseph's brothers have been, treated him really poorly. And so they're pretty concerned now that dad is gone, that there's going to be paybacks. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 50 and read here because it says, So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried his body to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre. This is the cave that Abraham had bought as a permanent burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him, accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he assured them by speaking kindly to them. This is God's holy word. Uh, Trina and I will be married 36 years this month, and we are, yeah, clap for her. Uh, she's, she is the one who is, uh, she's persisted, and, uh, and yeah, we celebrate that. Yet early on, we began to learn, you learn some things when you become married. You learn things about, your, about each other you didn't know, and you learn some things about the family you married into, because you didn't just marry one person, you married a lot of people. I don't know if you knew that, or if you're, if you're engaged. Brace yourself. Um, because, uh, so one of the things we learned is that when I went to Trina's parents' house, you walk in the front door, there's a dining room area there, you hang a left, you go through the kitchen, and then you go into the dining, uh, sorry, into the living room. And in the living room, there's lots of space. It's a really big open living room. There's couches and there's chairs, and um, it's really comfortable and inviting. And yet there's this, there's this one chair 
And uh, it's, it's kind of over on one side of the room, and it's there, and, um, and, and, and it's her dad's chair. And, and, and you sit in it, and if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if you got the courage to sit in it, next to his little end table, and it's got like some nuts and stuff, snacks there that are his, his. And, um, and if you walk, into, you walk into the house and you sit in his chair, everyone else who's in the room just kind of gets like this nervous feeling, like who's going to tell him? Uh, and they're all kind of looking around. And then finally someone says, uh, yeah, that's, that's Roger's chair. Oh, and you get up and you get out of the chair. And then, you know, you know me, you know my personality, because there are times when he left and went into the, the kitchen area that he, I, I would leave the chair and I would go sit in his chair. And then he would come up behind the chair and stand there and just, he wouldn't even say a word. He would he'd just stand there. And I knew he was there. But then he just kind of made, gave you that awkward feeling. And you think, I should probably move uh, so that it goes well with me. So you get, up, you get up out of the chair because it's his chair. It's his seat, and you don't sit in Roger's seat. We all know this, right? We, I mean, how many have families that you, this is like someone has their chair. You just don't sit, sit in that chair. I see some elbows flying. Some of you, that, that, that is the case. You just don't sit in that person's chair. Look, you do this. You come to church. I watch you, and you come fully expecting to sit in your seat. And then there's someone who is new or maybe someone who's shaken up their service time and they go to Saturday night, they're like, oh, I'm going to come to 930 service. And they're sitting in your chair and that dizzying look of confusion comes over you like, what do I do? And there's like lots of room and there's places for you to seat, sit, but you're like, I, I don't know if I can have this spiritual connection with Jesus in another seat. It's your sacred space. I was traveling, traveling recently. I, I took some vacation. I was coming back, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I need to get on some email because I'm not going to have tons of email when I get back, so I'm going to get on my... I'm sitting in my seat, my assigned seat. I'm in the right row. I'm in the right chair. I'm sitting there, and this guy comes, and he sits next to me, and he's like Chatty Cathy. He's like, he's so excited. It's his first flight since the pandemic, and he is just talking, and he's going, 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 and I'm going, oh, man, it's going to be one of these flights. I'm going to be talking for two and a half hours to this guy, and I really, I really got some work I want to get ahead on and get done, and we're, he's talking, and he, I'm doing the listening, and we're chatting, and some other guy comes down the aisle, because he's still boarding the plane. He comes down the aisle, and he stands there, and he kind of looks up at you know, the numbers and the letters, and he looks down, and then he looks back up, and he looks down, looks at his boarding pass, and then he says to the guy, hey, hey. You're in my seat. And the guy says, no, I'm not. This is my seat. He goes, no, it's my seat. And this kind of goes back and forth. So the finally the guy sitting down, pulls out his boarding pass, looks at it, and goes, ha, I'm like six rows back. And inside him going, hallelujah, glory. <laughs> Chatty Cathy is going back six rows. And, uh, and then this guy sits down in his seat, and he's like silent. Uh, he doesn't say a word. And I got a lot of work done. It was awesome. Uh, and, but you know what it's like when someone sits in your seat. And today what I want to talk to you about is a seat that only God gets to sit in. It's his chair. It's only his chair. And in the context of our family conversation, this is really important based on what we've been going through in the last 16 months. And it goes beyond that. This, this is like so crucial to life and how we do life. And it's about God's seat. It's about his chair. And no one else gets to see, sit in it. And it's called the seat of judgment. And I think there's maybe even a collective sense of, man, I'm so so glad I don't sit in that seat. But we have to realize that this seat actually is named so many other things than just the seat of judgment. 
I mean, you could call it the armchair of attack. You might call it the bench of bitterness. You might say it's the couch of condemnation. It's the Davenport of disapproval. It's the love seat of letting someone have it, right? It's the ottoman of taking an offense. It's the recliner of resentments. It's also the, the rocking chair of retaliation. It's the stool of passing a sentence on someone. And it's also, if you really want to get sophisticated, we can call it the wingback chair of wishing someone out of our lives. Any of those sound familiar? And what we will learn from this story is that that's God's seat. It's God's seat. And God countless times is saying to us, look, I'm the one who gets to, to make every wrong right. That's my job. That's what I do. And friends, this is just, the pages of Scripture are just littered with this thinking. Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is what Moses puts down in, on paper. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. Romans chapter 12, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do. Let me explain those verses because it's really super complicated. Let me parse some Greek verbs. Let me unpack some meaning in the Hebrew for you and tell you what all that means. Get out of my chair. That's what God is saying. Don't sit in my seat. This is my seat. And this comes to life in the story of Joseph. It comes to life in the story of Joseph because Joseph, he's one of those teenage kids and man, life is going really good for him. His dad favors him. His dad's got his eye on him. His dad gives him special clothing. And I, I love this about the story of Joseph. I mean, he gets these prophetic dreams, but he lacks the, the self-awareness to, to know who to share these dreams with. Right, because he's sharing them with his family at the dinner table. Guess what, guys? I had this dream, and you're all going to bow down to me. And his family sat in the seat. And the brothers specifically were offended by him saying this. And let's not forget from last week in the Sermon on the Mount. Murder is simply the outworking of what has already been planted in our hearts. And the spirit of murder is planted in our hearts by taking offense. So what we see in the story is that Joseph, he, you know, doesn't have much self-awareness, doesn't have much relational wisdom, and uh, yeah, his motives are, aren't impure, and, and his brothers hatch a plan. There's one day dad sends him out to go check in on his brothers. I mean, don't you love that? Your little, little brother's seeing how you're doing your, your job. I'm going to report back to dad. They see him coming and they say, here comes that dreamer. And they hatch a plot to take his life. They capture him. They kidnap him. They throw him in a pit. And there's some negotiating going on. Like, ah, we probably shouldn't kill him. But let's pretend he's dead. Let's slaughter a goat. Take that robe. Let's dip it in the blood. Send it back to dad. Tell dad he, was, he looks like he was devoured by a wild animal. And then they traffic him in the slave trade. They traffic him to Egypt. He's sold as a slave. He's bought by Potiphar. And then Mrs. Potiphar falsely accused him of, of a rape attempt. 
which then has him caught, tossed into prison in which he will spend a lot of years in prison. We know that he was, he was sold when he was age 17, and we know that he stepped into his position in Egypt in leadership, political leadership, when he was age 30. Jewish tradition will tell us that he spent 10 to 11 years in prison. And he was forgotten there. And if anyone has the right to hold a grudge, if anyone has the right to dream up some really delicious payback, if anyone has the right to sit in this chair, you would think it would be Joseph. Yet look at his response. The brothers come and you know, dad's died and... You know, we're, we are your slaves because they think that Joseph's been holding back, that he's really going to let them have it when dad dies. And so the, we are your slaves, and they throw themselves before Joseph, and Joseph responds by simply saying this, am I God? Am, am I God? Really, am I God that I'm going to punish you? And Am I God that I might sit in your seat? No, I'm not going to do that. And then Joseph responds also by, by, saying, by saying this. He says, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The first one is about, I'm not sitting in that seat. The second one is about perspective and trusting in a sovereign God that he knows what he's doing. Am I God? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And then lastly, God put me in this position for the saving of many lives. This understanding how God moves people around to accomplish his purposes that aren't necessarily based on our comfort. This is Joseph's response, and really what, what I want to hone in today in is just this idea of, am I God? This idea that this, this, is, this is God's seat, and we don't sit in it. And really, the main idea of this whole thing today is simply to say the fastest way to become like Satan is to try and be God, is to sit in his chair. The fastest way to take on the characteristics of the evil one, the quickest way, the most efficient way to take on the attributes of the adversary, the one who sets himself up against the knowledge of God, is to play God and sit in his chair. That's really my whole main idea for the, for the whole talk. And this is why Joseph will say, am I God that I would punish you? I mean, let's drill down on this because there's a lot of ways that we, we do this. It isn't just by holding a grudge. A, a, a lot of scholars and writers will say that there's ways that we play God, and one of the ways we play God is when I assume to be my own moral authority. This is Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is when God says, look, look, you can do whatever you want. Just don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. You do realize that their entire Bible could have been printed and put in a fortune cookie. It was pretty short. You could, you could have memorized the whole Bible. Don't eat from the tree. But then Satan comes and he says, did God really say? He's, he's holding out on you. And begins to undermine their trust in God, and they become their own authority. Look, friends, how often do we take God's word and say, We come under it? We come under God's word. Yet, how often do we then say, 
Yeah, but in this circumstance, I think I know better. We absolutize our opinions. And we say, I'm pretty good with it, but you know what? That just doesn't seem realistic in this circumstance. This is how we play God. This is how we sit in his seat. We become our own moral authority. Here's another way that we become our own moral authority. When I let people look to me to meet their deepest need. 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman has leprosy. He wants healing. He hears their healing in Israel. So he takes a chariot. He fills it full of wealth and resources, sends it to the king, and says, I'm sending you some resources because I want healing from my leprosy. What does the king say? He says, am I God? He tears his clothes. Here's what that looks like today. For those of us who are business leaders, those of us who maybe are leaders in education, or we're leaders in government, or we're therapists, or we're counselors, or we are pastors, and we encourage the idea that people can meet their deepest need in me. That's playing God. Not okay. That's sitting in his seat, and only he gets to sit in that seat. Another way that we play God is through inordinate worry and anxiety. It doesn't mean that you can't be concerned about things. It doesn't mean that there are things in life that you, you would be worried about. I'm talking about that moment when you basically are saying, God, I don't trust you because I'm going to take this one over. And I'm going to internalize it, and it just overwhelms you and oppresses you. And then the last way that we often play God is what we're talking about today in our family conversation is when I sit in this chair and I hold a grudge. Because I'm hurt. Let me tell you about Norm. It's 1982. I grew up as a missionary kid in Southeast Asia. All the missionaries and all the missionary kids, man, we were a tight community. We cared for one another. We had families caring for other other families. And my experience growing up within the CMA family was beautiful. I mean, I I, I feel like I'm so I'm so privileged to have this experience. I graduate from boarding school in 1982, and I go to my first college experience, and it's registration day. And so I'm like two days in the U.S., and so I'm walking around all the, the countertops, and I get to the last stop. I'm selecting classes. I'm trying to declare my major, and I get to Norm, and Norm is looking down, and he's asking me questions. Norm is the business manager for the school, and he's got his papers. He's asking me questions, and he asked me a question, how do you intend to pay for school? And my response was, well, I got a little bit of money from working a job in the summer and, um, you know, in China, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust God. And Norm is like checking boxes and writing. And when I said, and I'm going to trust God, he looked up at me. And he literally said, I'm going to give you one week to trust God. And then you're on the street. I sat in my chair. I was ticked. This is not how family treats one another. I had 18 years of being cared for and loved on and and watched over, and I walked. This is is the same movement. This is the CMA. And and there's Norm, and he's saying to me, I I can tell you what he was wearing that day. This is over 30 years ago, friends. I'll tell you what he was wearing. I can tell you the blazer he was wearing. It's kind of a baby blue. I'm colorblind. I still remember this stuff. I remember the tie. I remember his hairstyle. I remember everything because that day I was offended. This is not how family treats you. This is not how it's supposed to work. I didn't know. How how do you find out 
what jobs are open. I didn't, I'd never applied before for a job. I didn't have a car. I'm living in San Francisco. And I began to play God. You've got your norm, right? Just think about, the, think about the, the names that come to mind. You've got your names. They come to mind. The people who said something to you this morning when you drove the church, don't look at them. <laughs> or in the last 16 months during the pandemic. Or in the last 30 years. It's his seat. And if Joseph is saying, who am I, God? I think that should be our response as well, and we should refuse to sit in the seat. Why? Here's a couple reasons why. Only God has the knowledge to judge. He's the only one who knows all the facts. I have no idea what was going on in Norm's life that day. I had no idea of the financial status of the college. I have no idea of the pressure that he was living under. But I had an idea of my, uh, my circumstances. I knew everything about me, but I didn't know anything about what he was going through. And only God has the knowledge to judge. Oh, we, <laughs> we think we got pretty much all the data points we need. And in some cases, you may even be right. But that's not your seat. It's not my seat. Here's a second reason, probably more important reason, of why only God gets to sit in that seat. Only God has the power to judge without becoming evil himself. You do understand this, is that when you withhold forgiveness, you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Your soul is in peril because that very evil that you want nothing to do with and you're angry about that you experience, that very evil that when you choose not to be gracious and not to offer forgiveness as a Christ follower, that very evil begins to enter you. See, your heart becomes cold and hard. Your spirit becomes brittle. And on top of that, you start to become filled with self-pity and self-absorption, and pride takes over. And the very thing, the very evil that you experience, you then embody and then pass it on to someone else. I know you don't do that. Man, I've been there. Because it's a comfy chair. Do you know how many conversations I've had in my mind sitting in this chair? Ah, it just feels so comforting. But then I have to get back in the chair again. Only God has the knowledge to be able to sit in the seat. And only God has the power to judge and not become evil himself. So let me just ask the question. Who are you withholding forgiveness from? And who are you punishing? Who are you withholding forgiveness from and who are you punishing? Oh, we're pretty subtle in the ways that we punish. Can we just say that? Silent treatment. Or maybe it's denying access. Or maybe it's a letter. Perhaps it's an email. Maybe it's a kind of a passive-aggressive post on social media. Maybe it's walking into a restaurant or a department store and seeing that person and turning around and walking the other way. We have our ways of sentencing people when we sit in the chair. Are you punishing anyone? Are you withholding forgiveness from anyone? 
Because family doesn't do that. The family of God doesn't do that. And it's really, really hard to resist the temptation to sit in the chair. Is there anyone you're punishing that you need to extend forgiveness to? And you may be saying, well, see, extend forgiveness. I mean, the, the wounds are deep. The hurt is there. And you, you're right. You know more than I do. I found when I experienced those moments that I end up doing something as spiritual as this. I just write a psalm. I write my own personal psalm. Um, I, here, here's the structure of it. I begin with, with this, God, I feel. And I just write out everything. If you're writing a 50 stanza song, I will spend probably 48 stanzas on this one. I feel angry. I feel forgotten. I feel overlooked. I feel, 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 feel. You'll see this when you read the lament psalms. The, psalm, the psalmist writing all their feelings. Out. But then there's this reminder. But you are, you're compassionate, you're merciful, you're, this is who you are. So I will, and typically for me, it's so I will forgive, so I will put my trust in you, so I will obey. Some of us need to write our own psalms because we need help processing the pain. We need help getting out of the chair. Father George pastors a very influential and historic church in Egypt. It was Palm Sunday in 2017 when ISIS fighters planted bombs within the church. And during the Palm Sunday worship service, the bombs went off and over 50 people lost their lives and dozens were brutally injured. And... Um, not long after that bombing and that loss of life and not long after funerals, a message was preached by Father George. He titled the message, A Message to Those Who Kill Us. Here's his three points. Thank you, we love you, and we're praying for you. Father George said, Thank you because the terrorists gave the dead the honor to die as Christ died. Because the terrorists shortened the victim's journey to their heavenly home. Because the terrorists allowed Christians to fulfill Christ's words. In Luke chapter 10, verse 3, Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And because the terrorists' actions made people mindful of their eternal destinies. Thank you. The church was, in fact, now overflowing with people who didn't ordinarily attend. Then Father George said, We love you. Because even murderers and thieves, those... Uh, and love those who love them. But only followers of Jesus are taught to love our enemies. And then Father George closed his message by saying, we're praying for you. Because he reasoned, if a terrorist could taste the love of God even one time, it would drive hatred from his heart. He refused to get in the seat. One author captures the difficulty of forgiveness this way. He says, the essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. It's the voluntary act of suffering. Isn't this what Jesus did on the cross? A voluntary act of suffering, taking on our pain. Let's pray. So Jesus... Thank you. Thank you for the abundant grace you poured out on us. Now fill us with that same grace and let it flow. Let it flow from us and in, into the lives of family and friends and others and 
We'll give you great gratitude for that. We need your help. We need your power. There's some in the room right now, Lord, who don't like this talk. Give them everything they need to see past the pain and see you at work. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.